The Incomparable Podcast, number 90, May 2012. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. This is Jason Snell, your host. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about a television show that has come to us, uh, we American heathens, from across the pond, from the UK. It is Sherlock, the second season of the modern-day retelling of Arthur Conan Doyle's famous detective, uh, executive produced by Stephen Moffat, uh, who also runs a show called Doctor Who that you may have heard of, as well as Mark Gatiss, who has written some Doctor Who episodes as well and did League of Gentlemen, not League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, just regular gentlemen, hilarious sort of bizarre comedy show from the UK. Anyway, Gatiss and Moffat are back with three more movie-length, sort of 90-minute-long episodes of Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock Holmes and Martin Freeman, who you may know from The Office and you will soon know from The Hobbit, as Dr. Watson. So uh, joining me today to talk about the second season of Sherlock, which aired in the UK in January, I believe, and is airing in the US in the month of May. In fact, by the time you hear this, I believe uh, the second episode will be airing about the same time we post this episode. So uh, joining me today are Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. And it's elementary that John Syracuse would be here as well. Hi, John. Is this the alternate universe version of this podcast where these shows are just now airing and we just saw them? I can't keep track of which universe we're in. <laughs> it's plausible. Deni- Isn't it great that the people at the BBC think so highly of the incomparable podcast that they sent us screeners before yeah, it great. aired in the U.S.? <laughs> Much appreciated. It's very nice of them. And also with me today is Greg Noss. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jason. Good to have you here. Thank you. So we'll talk about Star Wars now. No, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. No. Don't cross the streams. Uh, So uh, let's see. Well, I guess we could start with the first episode of of Sherlock Season 2, and we'll fire off the spoiler horn uh, as we go through the episode. So if you haven't gotten through the whole season yet, we'll try to hold off on the season-wide spoilers until we get there. So the first episode is A Scandal in Belgravia, which was written by Stephen Moffat. Uh, and it is loosely based on A Scandal in Bohemia, which was the Arthur Conan Doyle story that introduced the American Irene Adler. Um, and Belgravia, I looked it up, is the region of London where Buckingham Palace is located. So a very clever little turn of events. Um, and this also picks up from the cliffhanger from the first season of Sherlock, where um, Moriarty has Sherlock and Watson dead to rights by a swimming pool which I don't even remember how they got to the swimming pool. Uh, so so uh, what did you guys think of this episode? I, I thought this was one of, the, uh, one of the better ones, if not the best of the three of the series. I, I think it was one of the best of the three, and it's because in, in large part we see Holmes going up against something that he never really has before, which is to say a female, uh, not, not quite antagonist, but competitor in some ways. Um, and we see him for the first time sort of not only finding his wits matched to a certain extent, but also seeing him somewhat discomfited by this idea of, uh, you know, dealing with a woman with, of such, you know, brain power. Um, so that provides us with a number of interesting scenes in which we get to watch him sort of puzzle this through. And also his interesting relationship with her, where it seems like he can't quite come to terms with how he feels or isn't willing, doesn't know, or just is totally, it's a totally foreign concept to him. So we get to see him a little bit more out of water. Well, you do have that question, and it's dealt with in the first season as well, of Sherlock Holmes as a, you know, does he does he have a, a romantic thought in his body? Is it, you know, is he purely an intellectual who who has no other thoughts about it or not? And, you know, Irene Adler is a, is a challenge for him on all those levels. I think, actually, one of the reasons that he finds her so intriguing is that, like Moriarty, she's not an average person. He sees the entire world sort of mechanistically that people are utterly predictable and she's not. I mean, she walks into the room at the beginning of the episode, stark naked. It's not something normal people do. Well, it's titill- uh, it's titillating. In my experience. <laughs> it's titillating. And yet in, in a way it's titillating to Sherlock in a totally different way. And this is, this is maybe my favorite thing in the entire three episodes is um, that moment where she walks in stark naked 
and um, we we do the, the 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 trick that they do where they have sort of a readout of like things he's observing or things that he's reading off of his phone from a text message. And as they pan over parts of her skin, there's just these question marks. And the the whole idea that she's her, her being naked is a challenge to him, not necessarily in a sexual way, even though she's been introduced as being a dominatrix and all of this stuff, but that she has erased all traces of her, you know, her tells, her background things that Sherlock Holmes will be able to reveal. So it's such a great, clever double meaning by having her just walk in naked and say, well, try to judge me now. Right. There's no, there's no clothing for him to gather any information on or, you know, sort of adornments. It's, it's all just, it's all just out there. You know, after the first uh, season of this, the first three episodes of this, I was, I also don't remember how they got to that pool, and I, it was so long ago. <laughs> they and, needed to and swim. The, Moriarty said, pool party, come on over. Yeah. And I had gotten, not tired of, but I felt like they had done enough of the, oh, isn't Sherlock so clever, and he can just look at people and figure things out, and he's Superman. Uh, so this episode where he's, you know, where he's he's kind of bored with that in the beginning, with the, these cases, you know, he's he's rejecting cases and he's got that case with the guy with the, the car backfire and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like he's bored with it, which I felt was a nice reflection of the viewer's possibility of being bored with that. And then he's immediately confronted with something that uh, like with the question marks by the naked person. Uh, I like that because not because I thought like, oh, now there's nothing that he can read, because I thought if he was actually the level headed automaton that we thought he was, he would be able to read a lot of things from just like how she applied her makeup or her hair or like marks on her body or something. But the reason he couldn't is because, as Jason pointed out, he was intrigued uh, and intellectually titillated by this person who was acting in an unexpected manner and also just plain old attracted. There was, you know, this is not we're wondering, like, does he have romantic feelings? And in this episode, it's pretty clear that he definitely does that he's a human being just like everybody else. He's just a little bit weird. Uh, so this episode was by far my favorite episode of the entire series. So the, I can't use, I hate the British terminology of series and season. Of the entire six shows that have aired of yeah. this show, this was my favorite. Not even close. I, I just huh. loved it. I, and it's because I think this episode, it like it builds on the first three of like, oh, this guy's really smart and then turns it on its ear. But it's also in itself a nice, smart episode. And I love the fact that the, the conclusion of this is not so much Sherlock figuring out something clever, but Sherlock using like his heart as well as his brain to get somewhere. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, I guess he kind of did use his brain as well, but I like that it was kind of like a romance story, like a love story with Sherlock, who's this very, very damaged individual. And, you know, you've got uh, Watson mixed in there as the, the other love of his life. Uh, <laughs> it worked. Every part of it worked for me. I just loved it. I, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, the first three episodes or the first season or whatever uh, play out like a high-class version of Psych. <laughs> <laughs> and they mix it up. And I'm actually looking forward to the third season, which unfortunately doesn't begin filming in 2013, just to see how much farther they push it. It's They started from a, a very predictable place with a Sherlock show, and they've gone – and the second episode opens up with a place that starts heading in a different direction and ends in a very different direction. Sherlock is a character at the end of – because the BBC sent us these advanced copies. Yes. <laughs> at the end of the sixth episode is a very different person than the one who starts out mocking Lestrade at the beginning of the first episode. Or, or at least we know him more. He, I feel like he's the same – it was always the same person, but – we didn't. Sure. Okay, he was, he, we were only seeing what he wanted us to see. Uh, but I'd as, argue, as we I'd argue that he does no. grow and change throughout these these course, even if it's only to become more like himself in some ways. Yeah, his walls come down a little bit. He, he, he I don't think he had the capa capability of caring about Watson the way he right. does exactly. at the end than he did at the beginning. Also, is are are Sherlock and Irene Adler the two most alabaster people in the <laughs> yeah, entire world? A little bit on, yeah. She's got a lot of skin showing, and it's very pale. As as she as she says to him, I cut my hand slapping those cheekbones. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some nice there's some nice touches in here too to the uh, as they've sort of as Moffat and Yetis have done all along with the callbacks to the original Doyle stories, which is of course this was this is a callback mostly to um, uh, scandal a scandal of Bohemia, in, yeah. a scandal of Bohemia, which is the the one and only uh, story in which Irene Adler ever appears. Which is it was always fascinating to me how much is made of her, given that she only appears in one story. I think she might get a mention in one of the other ones, um, but she does become such a singular character in the Sherlock Holmes repertoire 
that you you inevitably see her paraded out for every adaptation. Um, but I, I like the callbacks. And indeed, my favorite was a scene because I had not long a year or two ago rewatched much of the Jeremy Brett um, oh, yeah. Granada series from the uh, what late eighties, early nineties. And they did an, adapt- an adaptation of Scandal in Bohemia there as well. And the scene where he tries to basically suss out where she's keeping these these incriminating pictures by essentially, does he not, don't they like fake a fire alarm? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so that's there's the same sort of thing. They do the exact same thing in the original story, which is they, they fake a fire to see her go to whatever, you know, she is most likely to protect, protect what's her most valuable possession because they sort of you know trick her into revealing that location. Yeah, he has he has Sherlock has John out in the hall with a magazine, holding it up to a uh, to a smoke alarm. Right. So I mean, nice little things like there where they you know a tip of the hat for those who are who are familiar with the source material to say, look, yeah, we're, we're inspired by this. We took, take it in a very different direction. Um, and of course, a lot of the plot does not follow directly along the plots of the original story, but they they put just enough in to for for those fans to recognize, which is I think a nice touch. That's the hallmark of like good nerd media is that if you're adapting something, you have callbacks for the people who know the source material. Right. And it doesn't distract you if you don't. I mean, it's right. still it not, not only doesn't distract you, it doesn't rely on that because I know nothing of the source material. I missed all these references until they read the Wikipedia page and I still loved everything about this episode. So it's just so great that it's like it's just icing on top of icing. It's not even, you know, like, oh, well, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, and then you'll get this. No, you can get the whole episode without it. It's just a little bit extra for the well, people who know. As lifelong Doctor Who fans um, and professional screenwriters, Moffat and Gatiss both have uh, have learned how to temper their their enthusiasm as fans from their profession as writers. And you see it here because they are also both insane Sherlock Holmes fans. My understanding is that, like Moffat, before he was um, the showrunner of Doctor Who, he was actually online a lot more than he is now. He's on Twitter, but he used to be he used to post stuff all over the place. And one of the things he did was he actually hung out in a Doctor Who forum in the off-topic section talking about Sherlock Holmes all the time. He he apparently is, knows, you know, the, all the movies backward and forward and can tell you about, like, which Rathbone ones are good and, you know, and and it's kind of amazing. So here you've got this case where, where these guys are, are steeped in the history of the canon of Arthur Conan Doyle, but um, they also are smart, professional you know, writers writing for a modern mainstream BBC One, you know, here it's on PBS, but this is a mainstream channel, big budget production, and they know they're not going to uh, blow it by making it obscure. And so they don't. So they've, it's funny, you know, because we think about sort of sci-fi nerds, and these guys are also Sherlock Holmes nerds, and they're doing the same thing where they're dropping in continuity, sort of like they do with, uh, oh, this is a an alien who was mentioned briefly in the first Doctor in 1966, right? It's it's a lot like that, but it's just there as a as a, a garnish, uh, and it doesn't take away from the main part of the story. And some of the adaptations are so clever. Just uh, Sherlock's nicotine patch addiction. Oh, yeah. That he, can, he can lay on the sofa with his sleeve rolled up, and, you know, slaps one on and goes, ah, and leans back. Just, you know, like he's taken a shot of heroin, for instance. <laughs> I wanted to mention, um, uh, somebody mentioned it briefly, the the opening montage after we resolve the, the cliffhanger, which we should say the cliffhanger is resolved in a very amusing way where essentially um, Moriarty is about to have Holmes and Watson killed and as they're standing there silently with the little uh, laser sights uh, trained on Sherlock and, and Watson's heads, um, we hear Staying Alive, the <laughs> beginning of Staying Alive begin to play. And it turns out they're all looking at each other like, well, what's that? And then Moriarty rolls his eyes and pulls out his phone. It's his ringtone. Um, and he gets a call that basically says something. Presumably, he's got something better to do. And so he goes, well, I got to go. Bye. And that's it, um, which is which is really funny. Um, and, and phones in general in the first season, the phones and the texting and, and, and messages were, uh, really a major part of, of the, uh, of, of the story. And here it is as well. We've got this interesting, uh, ringtone <laughs> of Irene Adler, where she, there's a, a, a nice sort of sighing sound, let's say. Um, and then the lock code on her phone, which contains all of the 
all of the pictures that are incriminating is a major plot point. So I, I think it's also funny that in adapting these stories, the cell phone, which is so important to all of our lives, is at the core of the stories that they're telling here. <laughs> well, it's true. And, 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 you know, in some ways, in some ways in, in the UK and Europe, you know, th- that texting culture is even more prominent than it is in the US, surprisingly enough. It's been, it's been around longer and it's a little more ingrained. So it's nice that they, you know, they filter. I like when they bring in the the modern the modern elements. It's not necessarily over the top. I enjoy that they have Watson and instead of writing, uh, you know, newspaper accounts of Holmes's you know uh, cases that they have him maintaining his blog. And right. we see in the first episode that his blog actually has become rather popular, and Sherlock has become kind of a minor celebrity, um, which leads to one particularly uh, you know uh, amusing scene, which. Even if you're not familiar with Sherlock Holmes lore, I think you would get the reference when they're forcing their way out of a, what is it, a theater, and he grabs a hat to disguise himself, and of course it's a <laughs> yeah, deerstalker. It's the deerstalker. So I love that. I love that they bring that in eventually, and they t- everybody takes pictures, and it shows, and, and the montage very cleverly done. They've got, they've got that that shot of him in the deerstalker from multiple angles in different papers, so you can see how it was like the, all the different cameramen from the different papers were there, and they all reprinted it. You know, and then you've got Watson's blog, and that that's all part of a montage at that, that the post credit sequence, um, which is really excellently done. I, I, that's what I was getting at before that the lots of funny jokes and references to different uh, mysterious uh, uh, circumstances, including references to the canon. There's a speckled blonde at one point, which is making reference to the speckled band, which is a Sherlock Holmes story. Right, and they do a geek interpreter, which is a reference to the Greek interpreter. Oh yeah, Another and Sherlock doesn't like story. that title, and he doesn't think anybody's going to get it. Yeah. Have you actually been to the blog? They they run the blog. Yeah, they I, write up the they write up cases that aren't on the show on the blog. And the first season I went and visited, and it was great because all the comments were also from characters in the show, and mm-hmm. many of the characters in the show had their own websites. Like, uh, what's her name? Is it Molly? Is she the other the woman? Yeah, tech? Molly Hooper. She has her own blog, and it's all got pictures of like cats and everything on it. <laughs> it's excellent. They did a very good job with like you know fleshing that all out. I, I'm reminded that they did a a Twitter uh, a Twitter account too for for Irene the the whipping whipping hand uh, or the whip hand that 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 there was actually a fake Twitter account too. So. You know, lots of really clever stuff, but also that montage just – it not only does it serve the purpose of of setting up what's an important plot point, which is that Sherlock has become much more well-known, but it's also just really funny as they have these – like there's the guys – they're like the three the three nerds who, who say, well, you know, it's like these things we see on the internet and they sort of fade – you pan away from them because Sherlock's obviously not interested. And then as you're panning away, they said, but then they all came true and the, and the pan reverses itself and comes back because suddenly he's like, oh, that sounds interesting because he's trying to find a case that will hold his attention. And the best they can come up with is this guy who's shot out in the countryside – um, well, there's, or like there's a backfiring car and, and the guy out in the countryside and I think, what was it? Something fell out of an airplane or something and smashed. It was a boomerang. Oh, right. It was the boomerang. Right. That's it. Airplane uh-huh. was a theory that was, that failed. It's like, I didn't watch this episode recently. <laughs> and they also have like the, uh, the, the person who says that his, uh, this is from the Wikipedia page, I think is the what the wife's ashes or something weren't hers. And you know, I, they cremated my mother, but these ashes aren't hers. Right. I could tell. Right, and it all it all ties back. Eventually, it all ties back together like a good TV show to the central mystery case where they're faking the airplane crash and everything. Right. right. We also get Mycroft, who's played by Mark Gatiss, um, and uh, he's uh, a, a a cog in the wheels of the British government. And you get the sense at various points that he is, um, you know, he's got a strained relationship with his brother, and he's. Uh, sometimes a help, but more often a hindrance. And he gets Sherlock involved in the case with Irene and the and the uh, royal family members that have compromising photos of them in compromising positions. Um, it, I don't know. I agree with John. I, I think this is the strongest. I, the first episode of the first season was also very strong, but it's certainly the strongest of this season. Easily. Uh, and I also like the um, the bit with Molly. You know, you mentioned Molly before the uh, the tech who has a crush on Sherlock, mm-hmm. and she's ha- she's kind of played for laughs mostly in the first season or the first series, if you like. Yes, thank you. Uh, Little British and yes, flavor. and and in this one, in the first episode here, kind of the same thing happens, but then Sherlock kind of 
realizes that like he hurt her feelings when he told her that her sweater was ugly or whatever at the Christmas thing and everything and later makes up for it. So again, it's, it's a humanization of, of Sherlock and whether it's because he's growing or because we're getting to know him more or because he's lowering his walls. It's a development of the character that's interesting and it was desperately needed after three episodes of uh, Sherlock Superman. Right. Well, I think that's, you know, a lot of that is the influence of Watson too, right? Like we've got, you know, you've got Watson encouraging, becoming sort of his his interface with the public, but also sort of feeding that back to him and encouraging him to become more personable to a certain extent, um, or just by his sheer influence, you know, providing a, a example of, look, you don't have to be this totally withdrawn character either. You can still relate to people. I think the casting is great because it really brings that out. I mean, Cumberbatch looks strange. Yes. Alien. I mean, like, not, not only is he, he's all angles and tall and a handsome alien, <laughs> but, but not, not conventionally, right? He's got a, I agree with Greg. He's got a very weird face, right? But it, it works perfectly for this role. Well, he's a British, British celebrity. They all look kind of weird, right? And then Martin Freeman looks totally normal in every way. And they, they fit their roles. I mean, it's, it, I just think that works really, really well is the guy who is alien looks to me at least um odd and even irene irene adler who like is is beautiful but is also for from the perspective of american television shows where they always show a grizzled detective as a 22 year old woman right irene adler is not <laughs> is not 22 and it's from, from coming from american television viewing it's refreshing to see a woman who is not 18 to 22 or playing you know it, like and someone who was that successful and established as a dominatrix is not likely to be someone in her early 20s right even though that's how it would be cast because right they're the most attractive on, on american tv so i don't know i don't know how i can express it without making her feel like i'm saying she's old but she's not she's very beautiful she's but also she's, she's my age <laughs> oh well then she really is well, yeah yeah she's <laughs> ancient over the ancient. hill but uh but generally really good and then uh the ending i thought was great because it, it the notes I mean, maybe you guys felt differently for me at the end when we find out that that she's um, that she's been killed and we see Sherlock sort of checking his phone and you, the setup of it being this kind of bittersweet ending for for Irene. And this was the Sherlock sort of equal match or, or, or close to a match. Um, and then in in I, I would have to say true Stephen Moffat fashion because he does seem to hate he's like the anti joss whedon joss whedon loves killing characters um and and stephen moffat loves um making you think they're going to die for certain and then have them all live at the end we get this crazy flashback to her um execution where sherlock holmes is like he's he's posing as her as the person who's going to execute her and he helps her escape from the terrorist camp and presumably she's now off and, you know, off hidden somewhere. I wanted to see a happy ending and I was glad I got to see the happy ending. But well, we got both, back, right? We got the sad ending that could have faded out right there. And then, boom, we get this other ending. Well, we also had them them handling Sherlock of like one of one of the first times that now we're his friends were going to do something to spare his feelings, which is a fairly unprecedented event <laughs> in, in this show so far. Was this that? Well, you can't. Like they wanted to tell her, oh, she's in the witness protection program because they knew they knew how he felt about her. And they knew this is a delicate state because this guy usually doesn't feel these things and express these things. But we as his friends realize he is feeling them. So we better, you know, tell him, oh, witness protection program, of course. And meanwhile, you know, he knows, you know, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll keep looking at these old texts. I'm mournfully, oh, it's it's so sad. I know because I'm such intellectual. But really, you know, she's fine. He's safe. And I, I want to give a thumbs up also to um, a nice usage of Mrs. Hudson where they at one point have her tied up and interrogating her and she's, you know, all tearful and pretending, you know, I'm just I'm just the landlady or whatever. And then we we have a nice little scene with them in the kitchen where she reveals that she was holding the information they were looking for all along um, and totally played, you know, these thugs for for fools, which I just thought was a great little scene. It also I mean, Mrs. Hudson is a is somebody else that Sherlock cares about. Right. Very, very much. Yes. I and mean, he goes berserk. He throws the guy out the window. Yeah, exactly. I love I love their relationship with her. Again, something that's a nice callback to the original source material while still being tweaked in a way that feels, you know, makes like it makes sense, right, in this particular setting. 
it would be it would be really easy to have Sherlock Holmes be Mr. Spock, right? That that to have him be just a an emotionless kind of computer would be awesome. computer kind of guy, huh? <laughs> maybe he should maybe he should maybe instead should be in Star Trek movie. fight Mr. Spock in a future Star Trek movie. But um, but no, I mean Sherlock is a human being. He has. He has feelings. He's got problems. We see that with his many nicotine patches, you know, and, and he is he can be emotionally affected just because he lives in his own little what what, are, what do they call it? It's like his thought palace that he lives in. Yes. Um, he he does. He is affected by the world. It's just he's not affected by it like we are because he's not like us. He is this special character, but he definitely feels and can get really mad and and react accordingly final bit of credit to this episode is that i liked it so much that i managed not to spend the entire time obsessing over the way they were showing how a cell phone would work or a lock code because <laughs> that because that really was just terrible but i just high praise it. indeed just went with it you know but now that i'm thinking about the episode i'm like you know it's a four character password and uh like it, he could have just brute forced that in the time he spent thinking about it but anyway <laughs> just <laughs> what weren't there a number of wasn't going to wipe itself after a certain number of failures i think that was the well the, there was the also twist. there was a bomb on the inside yeah, there's many there was many things about that phone that were like, and I know you would never have made a copy of it. Yes, but but when I was watching the show, I did not think about that. So to the show's credit, you gotta love you got you got a cell phone with a bomb inside. You got a safe with a gun inside. <laughs> yeah, the safe with the gun. That's that's old school, right? But oh, yeah. once we start saying super secret sealed cell phone that you can never get data off of because of, and then we're like, ah, oh, you know, there's magic tape that holds the cell actually phone Sherlock's. Affinity for technology seems to bounce back and forth. At the beginning of the very first episode, you know, he's texting all the reporters during Lestrade's press conference, you know, and they don't know how he's doing it. And then later <laughs> on, he just seems nonplussed by, like, Watson's blog. Yeah. Because of the technology, or is that because he's oh, just... technology is magic on TV. We don't care, right? But that's the, the thing, the reason that lock code worked for me is because the the uh, the climax of, of that thing was that he had realized that she had feelings for him and it was a climactic emotional moment and the yeah. details of, of typing in the phone and I am Sherlock and all that stuff was just so beside the point. You're just happy that this, that this character development has happened, that, that he realizes that she has right. feelings, but he realizes that he has feelings and that also helps him solve the problem. They all and, burst know. into song and it's and she, a... but, but, you know, and she realizes that he, that she hit, she is now revealed and she's, she herself is naked despite the fact that she was naked in the first scene. Now she's like, you know, revealed. Uh, and we see that Sherlock was also still, his brain was still working when he was holding her wrist and everything like that. Great episode. She knows yeah. that he knows that she knows that he knows that it's turtles yes. on the way down. Yeah. Something. Too bad about the second episode, huh? Yeah. So, yes. so, <laughs> so funny thing, funny thing about the first season of Sherlock, um, I remember watching it and we talked about it briefly on a, on a previous podcast and, and, um, you know, people talked to me about it and said, Oh, do you like that? And I said, well, <laughs> I like the first one. I like the third one. The second episode of the first season was really not very good. It kind of didn't make a lot of sense. And it was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't good. It was, I, I can say now the worst of the six of these, I would say. Um, but the, I feel like the pattern has repeated itself where the middle episode of these three, uh, this time, this is the Mark Gatiss episode. He wrote the third episode last year. Um, the Hounds of Baskerville, adapting, obviously, The Hound of the Baskervilles. And um, I, it was bad. I thought it was bad. I, again, I thought that the first and third episodes were pretty good and that the second episode was just not so good. There was stuff I really liked in it. There, there were individual parts of it that I liked as well. But yeah. as a whole, it does fall sort of flat. And I thought the climactic scene was just too ridiculous. Which Which parts did you like? No, I mean, there are individual scenes. I just like the characters. I like the... Well, Estrada is used well here, I think. I think he feels like a person. There's a... Conver what is the line? They, there's a great dialogue scene where they have something with... You know, they, they try to pull out the old, you know, um, oh, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Um, he gets off a... You know, I mean, yeah. It's as if I just didn't watch this episode recently. But he kind of gets <laughs> off a snappy... There's some funny writing. There's some funny no, dialogue. I, I like when they're down in the town and they go to the pub... Um, yeah, and they're trying to yeah. get information, and there's some funny stuff there. I think when they talk their way into the 
Baskerville research facility or whatever it is <laughs> using Mycroft's information and and Sherlock just fakes his way in. I think that's a really funny scene that that uh and and they're worried that you know they're going to place that call and figure out that it's that he's not the right Holmes and it's not going to work as unlikely it is as it is that that you could talk your way in and there would be no like photo ID or approval or something that they just sort of sure I'm 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 Mycroft let me in but um there's good stuff in there the biggest problem with this episode is its fundamental premise it 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 mm-hmm. presumes uh, a supernatural solution in a show that is very much not about the supernatural you know it's not going to be yeah it's not the what x-files talking and yet about. that's the fake out the fake out right. is that it's going to be a, a supernatural and horror you spend thing. a lot of time with the guy you know staring out into his backyard being afraid yeah. and you know yeah. that Ultimately, it's not going to be a giant red-eyed hound, and it's going to be dumb. You know, I, you can just sense oh. from the second they come. Oh my god, this is going to be so dumb. I guessed what the solution was, and if I can guess what the solution was, you're not trying very because you're no Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, with the recent release, I just saw it the other day of the Avengers movie. I, I, I was thinking back to this because this is the solution is oh hound. Hound is a an acronym for a special oh, spoilers a special uh, you know and 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 the Avengers and all the Marvel the Marvel comics were like that too where there was like there's Shield and it has a ridiculous backronym and and they, and AIM and Hydra and they all have their own little acronyms that make them and Hound is is just right out of that which is like really really Hound is an acronym for a military laboratory and that somebody's wearing you know Lib- Liberty Indiana. Uh, and that would make this this kid think he's he's got werewolves going. It's just oh, just, no. it was just so terrible. I I think this is the worst of the entire show. Wow, by by far worse than know. the second one. Yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I liked. I I didn't love the second one from the first season, but I I enjoyed it. And this one was oh, a little too all right, just too ridiculous. We can agree that episode twos are bad, though. We can. Yeah, oh, something's yeah. happening. Yeah. Something's wrong. Well, they, they finally <laughs> they find the need to like balance. It. You know, the first one you sort of got the coattails of the. You know, you either got the pilot or the coattails of the last season, right? And they they put some good stuff up front, and then the last one has the cliffhanger and the it's sort of the build to the conclusion. Whereas the middle one's just like, let's just come up with a story to put in it. They've and- inverted the Star Trek curse. <laughs> yeah, but but with with a show like this where there's only three episodes per season. I know. Like you have room for pirates in a Doctor Who thing, right? Because you've right. got more episodes, <laughs> episodes. But there's just no there's no with three of them, please God, just don't let There's no room for pirates. No, yeah, there's no room for that. You for, can't for have bad, the, the, for bad the pirates. The curse of the Black Pearl cannot be because now you've taken a third of, of the entire season and dumped it down the toilet. Yeah, it it's you know, I heard I read an interview with Mark Gaddis and he said that he felt obligated to be more uh, respectful of the source material because um, the Hounds of Baskerville is so well known. And I just think they worked against what it, uh, they'd established as a really effective formula. Was the source material dumb? Because I don't know the source material, but this was no, dumb. No, I mean, the source material of the original <laughs> it really is, works. Is, is, is does work, but it's because you've, you've got that whole Victorian era spooky gothic ghost stuff, right? And that yeah. does, even though you know a lot of the stuff is going to turn out to be explained rationally, I think the atmosphere of it works a lot better mm-hmm. in the original. It's not um, going to be chemi- chemical weapons causing you to causing right exactly. To There's a head fake, I believe, at some point in here where they're talking about genetically altered, you know, yep. or or yep. bred a- a- attack animals. And I, 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 I felt like that would have been a better way to go is to have it, you know, to have it be that these are like biological weapons or there's a breeding program that's out of control. Something that would be a little more science fictional because we live in an era where the, oh, it's ghosts and specters. It just doesn't, it, it, you know, it just doesn't fly. And so to use that as the threat and say, I, I, I remember turning to my wife while we were watching this and, and saying, is this an X-Files episode now? Because yeah. I, I just that's not the frame of mind I'm in with Sherlock Holmes. I'm expecting a rational solution. And and then, you know, to to instead say, well, it's a military conspiracy and there's a conveniently you know, if you're gonna commit a horrible crime, don't wear the t shirt that says Hound Liberty <laughs> Indiana. Oh, and by the way, if you're gonna have a secret government research lab, don't make t shirts with your location <laughs> written on them. <laughs> It's like any other startup. I didn't care about the guy with what's his name, the guy who's having the nightmares. Oh, and Russell Tovey, yeah. kid, right? He was such a focus of this episode, but I don't care about him. I don't. I don't care that he's got problems. Like he's not. 
you know, especially after the first episode, that made you care so much about your lead characters. You wanted you wanted to see them, like you want to see them growing through, you know, or even just like Mycroft or Moriarty. Like that's that's your main cast here, and then you got this other guy that they focus so much on. I don't care why he's having nightmares. I know it's going to be dumb, and it's not gonna. It's not stressing out those other guys to solve this stupid case. There's no debate, Mulder and Scully style, even between them, just saying, "Oh, I think it's ghosts. Oh, it can't be ghosts." No, there's none of that. It's just. You yeah. wouldn't have cared. You wouldn't have cared who it was because it was stupid. Yeah. I mean, yes, when that, Watson gets locked in the lab and he's terrified, you don't care because you know as soon as he gets some fresh air, he's going to well, be was, fine. Well, it was. It was. That was a scary it was scene. It was better though. And this. <laughs> and, and this is what I'm getting from this conversation is is this is an example of a very good show uh, doing a bad episode. And it's bad because there are some overarching problems with it that just sort of make it fall apart. It's not to say that there isn't stuff in it that's good, because like I said, I like the village. I liked the stuff with Lestrade coming down. I liked the stuff in the pub where they're t- where where Watson and Holmes are sort of lying to people about their identities to get them to talk to them and give them information. There's like a therapist, and they get they get they, they get his therapist to break confidentiality, which is I thought that was funny. I liked the scene with Watson trapped in the lab. I thought that was mm-hmm. I thought that was scary, but I liked that Holmes did it. But, but if, I didn't. It was just tedious. But it, it it all you know even even if you like that stuff, I mean, I I agree with the overarching idea here, which is that it it all is for nothing because it, it it made no sense and and this and the, the the end is this kind of foggy. It's supposed to be this like spooky. We're on the moor kind of thing. Except it, is it fog or yes, it is fog, but it's also chemical hallucinogens and and you kind of can't understand what's going on. It just yeah, it was like they ran out of ideas and time and said, well, you know, we give up the story. And then the story is over. It was just a, a mess on all fronts. Yeah, well, I guess uh, we've settled that. <laughs> Hope you're not looking for an argument. Sorry, Marcatus. Well, it has a nice, well, let's not forget the ending. There is a brief little hint at the end where we see, um, and we see Moriarty again. Yeah, doesn't he get released by Mycroft? And- yes, which is an interesting, you know, sort of brief moment of, what is going? I mean, he we see him briefly show up in the first episode as well as a contact of Irene Adler's. Right, she's working for him. Right. Um. So we have that thread is still going. Micro, you know, uh, Moriarty's left them alone for now, but at the same time, you know, he's constantly in the back there as a threat. Um. And so we have these nice little building scenes with him, but we don't entirely know what's going on. Right. So uh, in the Reichenbach Fall. This is our episode that is uh, obviously based on um, the final problem, which is the episode where Arthur Conan Doyle decided he was tired of Sherlock Holmes and was going to kill him. Which worked out great for him, by the way. And um, and so he plunged in a, in a battle with Moriarty. He plunged the, 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 theoretically to their deaths um, uh, over the Reichenbach Falls. Um, and so this is the episode about Moriarty. And Holmes and Moriarty, Moriarty's diabolical plan to destroy Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> uh, this has got that flashback structure that is still kind of in vogue, although, you know, it's it's used, I guess, to a purpose here. I'm just really tired of it, where, where you start off with something that was at the end. In this case, Watson says, Sherlock Holmes is dead. And then we flash back to see how it happened. Um, and it's all about this kind of Moriarty... Uh, is a master criminal and he breaks into the crown jewels and the banks and has a computer virus or something and um, and allows himself to be caught so that he can be put on trial. Um, and, and then I guess he bribes the jurors and they let him off or he threatens the uh, jurors. He threatens them through the cable TV. <laughs> well. I, I like the fact that he's a magician in this episode. He doesn't have actual magic. He's a magician. How do you get get uh, put off on a, on a trial? You get something on all the jurors. How do you break into, you know, the crown jewels? You bribe the guards. And, all part of his plan. And I, and I do like that the, the, the eventual solution is like, you idiot. I don't have a code that breaks all security. What is that? Some stupid thing you see on TV. You know, it's kind of making fun of itself. Yeah, I paid I paid the guy. And and all the things that it's done. <laughs> well, not to mention that whole sash. That whole... Did anyone else get a little freaked out with that one bit where he's pretending to be an actor hired yeah, well, oh, yeah, that, yeah. Well, you know what they're going for there and it's like i know that they're gonna what they're trying to go for i mean but they, i know they, that there is but did you did you stop they make it go on long enough yeah they make it go on long yeah, you, enough you're like you start hmm. to go 
Whoa. Is Sherlock crazy? <laughs> is this that guy just an not, not so much that, but like basically, are, are the creators of this show so daring that they're going to go with this like straight up, you know, and say, oh, no, really, actually, those first those last four things you saw were the delusions of a madman, you know, and he was unknowingly setting himself up to solve these cases Tyler Durden style. Right. Because, I mean, why couldn't why not do that? Right. So I they did that scene long enough where I was like, I guess they could. Oh, no, you got me. All right. <laughs> It's just Moriarty. Yeah, but it's good. And you're right. There is that there's that great fake out of the uh, we actually see the uh, the guards uh, as the, uh, you know, the, the computer, the stuff unlocks and, it, and you're led to believe that we're seeing that standard kind of like, oh, something's happened to our computers. And then they backtrack to it later and show that, no, it was, you know, it it wasn't. It was social engineering, basically, that yep. led to that. And it wasn't at all what we were what we were led to believe, which we tend to believe, right? Because that's like the typical uh, sort of uh, uh, plot machinations in, in a modern TV drama. And, in, and including on it. this show. Including on this show. Yeah. That's right. So I, I like that the, the little self And like when this episode started, and they're like, oh, Moriarty's doing these magic things and he's going to get the crown jewels. So I was like, after the, the Hounds of the Baskerville, I was like, oh, no, they're, they're going to blow number three, too. Uh, and I liked how they turned it around and said, no, no, though, he just he just bribed people. Yeah, that was a that was a nice was a nice touch. I mean, I mean it brings it it brings it home. It Maybe may appreciate having him sitting there on the throne with the crown jewels on, which uh, was silly and hokey, but that I still gave it a thumbs up. Right, but this it's all a plot. It's all a scheme by diabolical Moriarty, uh, who who. Uh, let's see, what's the sequence of events here? So Moriarty is is acquitted. And he sets up Sherlock to be viewed as a fraud, and then um, Moriarty threatens Sherlock's friends, and he, yeah. he ends up on the roof of a building, right? Um, but not he's before got all, he's got all the uh, he's got all the assassins out in the world to do his bidding, and he basically says, "If, if I don't give them a call, they're going to kill everyone you care about, Sherlock." Unless meet you tell me, yourself meet me on this room. on this building, right? Right. So it's a battle of wills, a, show, uh, a showdown at high noon, your brain against my brain. Right. But Draw. before he goes there, he visits uh, in the morgue with Molly. And then he goes, which is important because that's totally a setup for the resolution yeah. of this mystery. But um, so they end up on the roof and um, in a moment. And again, we are we are we are talking about the third episode. So if you do not want to be spoiled. <laughs> Do not listen any further because <laughs> we're going to talk about what happens here. The The moment that, that is shocking and, and brilliant and surprised me is when Moriarty makes it perfectly clear that he's the only one who can call off the assassins. And if he doesn't call them off, they will kill Mrs. Hudson and Lestrade and Watson. And then he blows his brains out. Yeah, I love that. That was that the Trump was, uh, card because he was like, you know, this battle of wills. I know that you can call them off. So I just have to figure out from what I know of you. Are you the kind of boom? Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. The end. So great to have Sherlock standing on the roof, and there's that moment of like, all right, Mr. Big Brain. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do now? Well, he has contingencies. Yep. They're just like, uh, you know, just like Luke, he's got plan B, plan C, plan B. <laughs> it reminded me of the end of Seven, where the completion of his plan happens to be his own death, yeah. except at the end of Seven, you know, he got to see it all the way through, the bullet entering his brain was confirmation that it had worked here. He kills himself too early. And I, I, I like the Moriarty character, even though he's, you know, kind of the, the super villain who runs everything behind the scenes is a little overdone. Now, I can't blame them for using it because it, Arthur Conan Doyle kind of invented it, but um, I, he, I don't think he would have killed himself before making sure that he had defeated Sherlock. Well, the thing is he didn't, it, he didn't go up there planning to shoot himself. He seems like he came to that realization on the roof that in this battle of wills, this was the only way he felt like he could decisively win. And I think he did think like, but I think he realizes that he thought it was a checkmate. Yeah. If yeah, he stays, yeah. If he stays alive, he's going to lose this battle. And I, but he figures, but I've got that one Trump card because I'm crazy. Uh, and so he didn't go up on the roof figuring I'm going to go up on the roof and kill myself. He just got sort of drawn into that. And it's his final triumph from like, he's cornered, you know, and it says, I'm going to be defeated, but aha, I've got this one last thing. And I think he was triumphant as he shot himself. Uh, he just didn't think it through quite long enough. It is hard to believe that he is willing to go to that length. I mean, it does make an, an, a, a breathtaking moment. Well, he is. He's also crazy. 
I, I love the way it worked out in the story. I mean, I, I just, it, it, the, the moment where he shoots himself is kind of like, oh my God. But I don't know that somebody who had spent so much time rising up through the world with so many, his finger in so many different things suddenly comes across Sherlock as something that is not going to bore him and then ends the game. Well, he wants to win. I mean, that's the, the thing. About, I like the fact that he, that he does, he does do something. He does do something kind of rash and everything, because like you said, Moriarty as the, like, I'm the mastermind and I'm going to be around for 20 more seasons of this show. And it's, I like it better when he's, He's silly and flawed and just a common criminal, um, but wants to match wits with Sherlock. This is the culmination of his life, basically. He's found the guy who he wants to defeat to prove himself. He's bored. He could be rich if he wanted. He could steal anything he wants. He could do anything he wants, but he wants to defeat Sherlock. And he he comes to this conclusion. He doesn't stay around for it, though. He doesn't stay around for Sherlock's defeat. He thinks that's the final move, but he can't be sure. I know. Well, it was the final move. Sherlock is dead, right? <laughs> not quite but but you know what i mean like from his perspective as far as he's concerned uh he's dotted all his eyes and crossed all his t's and he kind of got into a corner but he says i i see i can reach for victory so he goes out thinking he's 100 percent won and if it wasn't a show title named after the character who he wanted to defeat <laughs> he probably would have won <laughs> it's the big uh series finale of moriarty yeah, if right. they bring Moriarty back for anything, I mean, even by name, I'm going to be pissed off. He has a twin. A he has a twin brother. In killing him, and he just needs to disappear. Yeah, yeah. Although, uh, you know, t- uh, jumping off of John's point, I-, I think it's also the way to view it is that this is the only way he could plausibly win, and he doesn't want to lose. So he's willing, essentially, because he's crazy, to kill himself in order to give himself the best chance of ruining Sherlock. Even even if it's not hundred percent sure it's going to work, I think he figures this is his. He's 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 this is better than living. Yeah. You know, he's got he's done every move he can make. This is right. the only move left, and hopefully it will work. And this is better than living in a world where he knows he's been defeated. But that's the By Sherlock. Basically. Oh, yeah. How I hate him. I just I couldn't walk out five minutes before the end of a show, not knowing how it turns out. <laughs> and if you're in the show, well, you you are not Moriarty. <laughs> Wow. So, so, um, great moments on the rooftop with Sherlock, uh, after that moment afterward where he's standing there and the, there's the body on the roof. And then we've got Sherlock calling Watson and, uh, leaving his suicide note, right? Where he admits everything is, is true because he's trying to save them. And then he, he jumps off the building and we see somebody fall off the building and land and smash into the ground behind a dumpster. And Watson, Watson is about to go, uh, uh, look, run to the, the spot, but he's hit by a guy on a bike. Coincidentally. Huh? And he can't (laughs) hear or anything. He's in a daze. He's all confused. By the time he gets there, the people from the morgue are carting the body away. Or carting something away. Something's happening. Mm. He's kind of fuzzy on Suspiciously efficient morgue. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) It's as if they were tipped off in advance. Yes. That something might happen. But one of the nice things about the way that this works is all the pieces are there, and we get to think about how they interlock, but it's not solved for us. And that's like, you know, we anybody who, who knows the history of Sherlock Holmes knows that Doyle, Conan Doyle tried to tried to kill him off and then brought him back. And so if you go go into this knowing that, then you know that Sherlock's not going to be dead. Uh, you know, because it's a British show, who knows? They could kill him at the end of it. But you know <laughs> that they you have to fake kill him because that's part of the mythology. So how? And I appreciate that they that they left turn it right from the again speaking of those who know the sort of the canon going into it, thinking oh the Reichenbach falls right. You know, at the end they wrestle at the waterfall and they fall off the waterfall. Um, and their bodies aren't seen or whatever. And so we have that nice little bit at the beginning where he recovers the painting of the Reichenbach Falls. <laughs> um, right. And so I was waiting the whole time for like, oh, they're going to like, you know, how closely are they going to adapt this? Um, and then they go in a totally different direction. And it works so much better. If, you, if you've seen the Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, Sherlock Holmes 2, they, they, he wrestles Moriarty down a falls and it's dull. Well, I mean, it's a different it's a different sort of adaptation, I think, and I agree that this oh, one totally, is definitely more totally, of a left turn. No, it's great that they um, that they show them to you at the end, right? It would be really I was really concerned that they were going to play it completely straight as a cliffhanger of is he dead? Hmm. Yeah, and, well, and, and not much didn't. of a cliffhanger. I mean, we'll be back for season three of the or guy who just we? killed himself. 
Also, is it kind of creepy he hangs out at his own gravesite? Well, well, you know. See who shows up. He's living <laughs> there, right? What's the hero people say about him? I mean, but every every character who ever fakes his death right, always, always goes to their own funeral, be- right? If you're ever going to I see someone to who you think is dead but might not be, check behind the tree next to the gravestone <laughs> because that's where they always are. Yeah, but I, I did yeah. like that, and, and it's a nice moment the way they, they pan over and he's behind the tree and the music swells, and that's the end. Uh, so... I, you know, I thought this was I thought this episode was pretty good. Um, you know, I love the interplay between uh on the rooftop especially, some of the setup stuff. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, some of it made me feel uncomfortable because they really are attacking the, you know, attacking Sherlock and the whole premise of the show and you're like, "Oh, what's what's he really doing here?" Although the the tone when Moriarty's breaking in all the crimes that are possible to be broken in England simultaneously, it's kind of fun and like, what is he doing? Because you know, you can't not watch it on the meta level of like, what's the real story here? This is too simple. Moriarty must have some sort of plan. So you you have mm-hmm. to have that going in. But I thought it was good. Yeah, it's a little overly dramatic. I mean, they're going to end with, you know, it's got to be, oh, everything you've ever cared about in this entire series will put, be put into question in one final episode that will be an unsatisfying cliffhanger, but really he's alive. I mean, there's a little bit of that. Uh, that's why I didn't like it as, uh, nearly as much as the first episode, uh, but it was, it was all right. It was certainly a big step up from the stupid hounds. You don't really get the, um, the uh, you've run a long race, There've been we've told these many stories, and now you get your big <laughs> resolution when it's a three-episode season, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Though, though the episode length really works in their favor, I think. Oh, I agree. They're not having yeah, to definitely. cram things into an hour, and they get to stretch them out to a mini-movie. And I I think that has really benefited the series, being able to tell larger, roomier stories, even if it does mean a three-episode season. Well, it's the equivalent of, of six Doctor Who episodes, so it's sort of a half the length of what a season of Doctor Who is. Uh, but they stack those episodes together, and I, I agree. I, I like the fact that they're the... They're they're mini movies. So that also means we had a two part a two part hound series. Can you imagine if we had a oh. two part two part <laughs> pirate episode? We'd be killing ourselves. It's like, come on! Yeah, we had the two part Silurian episode of Doctor. Who. That was pretty bad. But yeah, yeah. we still. I, we I don't know if the BBC is doing this more than they used to, but they um, there's another series which the BBC sent me a previous uh, screener. Yes, called Black Mirror. That is three ninety minute episodes or forty five minute episodes. Even uh, I think, and it's it's. It's just it it works in a way that that I haven't seen and in, in, in Black Mirror they're totally unrelated but they they just function as nice little chunks of content. They do short seasons over there and one of the reasons I think is to get more stuff on the air that they, their budgets are limited and so they're willing uh to to do 3 episodes here and 5 episodes there instead of in the American model where everything's 13 or ideally 22 episodes a year. Um you know, it, it is. I, I like. I said. I wish. It, I wish it was more like six. Uh, but the the time it takes to do it, like I, I don't think. First off, Stephen Moffat. I mean, Doctor Who is almost year round, and then he's doing this, and then I'm not sure whether Benedict Cumberbatch, which I just love saying, uh, <laughs> is is available or Martin Freeman is available to do much more than this a year anyway. And it sounds like they want to keep doing this. We should say, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, as we mentioned earlier, he's in currently filming the next star trek movie uh, martin freeman has finished or is still in the midst of filming the two hobbit movies one of which is coming this fall or this winter so these guys are in demand and uh martin ma- freeman is becoming like the geek movie god yeah, yeah well, well and speaking I, of which don't forget benedict cumberbatch also in the hobbit though in voice only uh yes he's he's a dragon i believe i believe he is uh, so, so these guys are busy and so we, you know, maybe three episodes is all we can get. I, we can ask for more. Um, but given that they, that, that they only are making two good episodes a year. Yeah. That's the question. Know. Like how much good writing is in them? We talked about this with Dr. Who too. Like maybe they just, maybe they just don't have that many good episodes in them. I and mean, we like, maybe if they do, could we trim off the bad episodes of Dr. Who and make a shorter season? I, and here they just have to do three and they still, they just can't bang out three that are up to the le- the highest level like it's really uneven for a series that has three episodes a year yeah. you know really uneven it's, it's would... a, up down up i mean it's... yeah so maybe maybe cut it back to two two and a half or one like i don't know what you have to do like, you think you think back to some of the shows that we love from american tv that just seem like i mean i don't know pull out the sopranos or something like 
where yeah, the Sopranos has its ups and downs, but man, they did like umpteen episodes, that, and the, the, there was much, the standard deviation was, you know, much lower than this. It was very more of an even keel, like highlights and a couple low lights, but not these big dips, you know? It seems like they just don't have, I don't know if Stephen Moffat is, is overcommitted, or they don't have the time, or they just have bad judgment about what's going to work and what's not going to, but well, it's just... it is different when you're trying to make things which are essentially, you're essentially making three movies, right? I mean, I think that has a different, in some ways, you know, a different proposition than making, you know, 20 well, episodes. It's, it's only an extra 30 minutes. I mean, especially, again, thinking of The Sopranos, a lot of those things were two-episode arcs that they just happened to be split up because the episodes were only an hour long or whatever, and they would come in little batches like that. But, I, you know, or pick any other series that you want that has just better consistency with much, much more content. And I don't know if it's this because the writers don't have time, the actors don't have time, or there's some some other functional. I don't watch many British shows. There's Doctor Who and and Sherlock mainly, and and the, both of them have the same problem. Of course, both of them involve Stephen Moffat, so maybe that's part of the. Uh, well, I mean, I, I watch a lot of British shows. I don't think that's anything necessarily endemic to to you know stuff produced there. I think that it yeah, probably... space was 100 percent good. There you go. It's another example. Well, I watch, but in the, and there's a lot of stuff that just tends to be much more even keeled, but it may just depend with the writing staff in this particular show. I do think that it's exacerbated by the small sample size, right? I mean, if 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 you do 20 episodes and you have three or four bad ones, you kind of shrug it off a little bit more. With I know with Doctor Who with 13, you know, you have that pirate episode and, and you're like, wait a second, you know, you only have 13, make them all good. And then with Sherlock, you only have three. Yeah. Why can't they all be good? And and it does, I, you know, I don't know whether some some of it may just be the production system that they don't have the ability to commission eight scripts and then pick three good ones. They commission three scripts and... If you get a stinker, you get a stinker. And it probably also it's with from, this is... in this case, it's from the one of the co executive producers. So is there somebody really there to say it's yeah, not working? A, you might not have time. Like if, if if it's not working, you have to just go with it because we don't have time to write a new one and film a new one. We have to just go with what we've got, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But but that said, I mean, even with these these clunkers in the middle, um, you know, even with the bad episodes, there are things about them that are good and the way they're shot and and some of the scenes. And when this show is on, you know, it's really quite good. And and, and uh, the fact that this is we're talking about Sherlock Holmes, right? I mean, th- that they have taken this character that has been on not just, you know, was written about more than 100 years ago, but has been interpreted in film and TV time and time again and done something that is successful and interesting and fresh and modern, you know, it is a great accomplishment because this really could have stunk, right? I mean, or been boring and or or been like those two Robert Downey Jr. movies. And it's not. So I'm looking at Wikipedia, which is the source of all knowledge, as we know. Um, and it looks like, um, oh, yeah, they're not going to even start producing the show until early 2013. Not, not air it in 2013. They're going to start producing it. So it's going to be... A long time before we see more. Everyone's going to be old by then. Yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch is going to have won a, a, a two Academy Awards for all the film <laughs> roles that he'll be taking in the next two years. So, any other uh, final comments about Sherlock before we uh, before we close the door on season two, series two? Make more, make more. Yeah, sooner. I think. I mean, despite our despite our complaints, I think you know there's no argument that we'll all turn in tune in for the next season oh even so. our complaints we didn't like episode two so much but we liked one and three and wish they would make more like that because it was really good and you know two just suffers in comparison it would be you know it, it's a good show make make more yeah, yeah just one just one episode like the first episode of this season is fine that holds me for a year yeah i'm just good make with one that. of those a year yeah yep i'd be okay with that all right um well that i think we've covered sherlock enough for the next I guess next two years or so. <laughs> yeah, that's depressing. Years. Three episodes every two years. All right. You know, Stephen Moffat's got his hands full with the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, too, I think. So, you know, he can he can take some time while Benedict Cumberbatch is fighting Spock uh, for the next year. And while Martin Freeman is fighting, fighting dragons. He's burgling. All right. Not sure. doing the Hitchhiker's sequel. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think the Hitchhiker sequel is going to be on a double bill with the John Carter sequel <laughs> in hell. <laughs> oh, well, uh, maybe there'll be, uh, another Marvel, Marvel, uh, spinoff movie that you, he can you do. think so? He can be in, uh, 
Excalibur. Was that the English? Yes, Excalibur with Captain Britain. Yeah, see? Martin Freeman, get in there. All right, so we will close the door on Sherlock, which is continuing to air as we record this on PBS in the United States, and it's available uh, elsewhere, uh, I think on DVD already, because everywhere else they, they already saw it. It's just in America where we had to wait until May to watch it, unless you got the screeners early. Lucky us. So uh, until the next episode of The Incomparable, I want to thank my guests. Greg Noss, thanks for being here. Thank you. John Syracusa, thank you very much. I'm going back into Sherlock hibernation now. All right. Hibernation mode for two years, probably. And Dan Morin. Always a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. So until next time, I'm Jason Snell for The Incomparable Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Instead of saying recording, we should all uh, imitate Scott McNulton saying, saying hello. 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 I have a very different relationship with Scott McNulty. <laughs> Was that a good evil laugh? I don't know. Mildly evil. <laughs> You're no Dr. Horrible. As someone who is sort of, you know, you know, a megalomaniacal egotist. It is so, hard to Dan, you're it. saying you're saying that since as you are a megalomaniacal <laughs> yeah, you, can you can't make the connection. Yeah, I feel I, I feel that I you wouldn't do that. I, I identify with Moriarty. I wouldn't. Beep, boop, boop, boop.